Welcome to the CFITrainer.net podcast. In 2023, NFPA will release a new standard, NFPA 1321. It's the standard for fire investigation units, and Randy Watson, chair of the NFPA 1321 Technical Committee and current IWI president, will join us today to talk about the new standard and dispel some of the myths about it. Randy is the Director of Technical Training for SEA, where he coordinates the extensive training and mentoring program for the company's new engineers and investigators. He's an IWI CFI and IWI CI. In addition to chairing NFPA 1321, he has served on an other NFPA standards committees, uh, technical committees since 1991, including NFPA 1033 and 921. He also serves on ASTM International's E05 Committee on Fire Standards and the E30 Committee on Forensic Science. Randy has been an IWI member since 1984. He has served the IWI in many capacities, including the Board of Directors, as an Executive Officer, and on numerous committees. He was sworn in as the IWI's President in April of 2022. You may also recognize Randy from his many classes and presentations at fire investigation industry conferences. Randy, welcome back to the podcast. It's always great to speak to you. Good morning, Rod. Thank you for having me. It's always great to be with you and really appreciate everything you, Kathy, and all of those at Stonehouse Media do for the IWI. It really helps us uh, educate our members and uh, really appreciate all the work. Wow. That's, we uh, are grateful for the kind words and uh, have always felt so good about the work that we get to do. Uh, and again, just thank you. So NFPA 1321, a new standard in fire investigation. Let's talk about that. Uh, what's the genesis of 1321? Rod, 1321 actually came out of the Organization of Scientific Area Committees, commonly referred to as OSAC, uh, that was started in 2014. Uh, one of the subcommittees of OSAC is Fire and Explosion Investigation. Uh, OSAC was set up to evaluate the current state of forensic science in the United States to improve standards that already exist or identify gaps uh, that additional standards were needed. Uh, in our committee meeting in OSAC, one of the gaps that was identified was that of the fire investigation unit. We had 921 that dealt with the investigation and methodology. We had 1033 that talked about the investigator and the qualifications, but there was nothing that addressed the actual investigation unit or entity. As a result, the committee began to discuss that issue. During the discussions, one of our OSAC committee members brought up one of the largest departments in the country has a huge fire investigation unit. The training budget for that large department's unit was only $3,000. That is not going to help that investigation unit get better uh, and do its job more effectively. As a result of all those discussions, the OSAC committee developed a presentation that was sent to NFPA. The recommendation was that NFPA create a new standard relating to fire investigation units. That was in 2017. With the goal of helping these units uh, be able to move forward and giving these units something that they can use with decision makers to help them get the resources they need to be able to do their job. So that uh, was presented to NFPA in 2017. They then the Standards Council published that request for a new standard in their journal requesting public input. This, this went for about a year. Uh, I was very surprised at the public input that was received. Uh, the, I was expecting the public response to be overwhelmingly negative, 
and not in favor of this, uh, the development of this standard. The response from the stakeholders was about 50-50, 50% in favor, 50% opposed. As a result, NFPA could have basically done anything they wanted to, but in December of 2018, they made the decision to move forward with the program, developing a new standard on fire investigation units, and appointed a technical committee in December of 2018 to begin the development of the standard. Wow, it went. So uh, it does take quite a bit of time. When I look at these things, how many years it goes, you had a letter of recommendation, what, that went out in three years ago? Uh, uh, the, the initial request for a new standard went out in the fall of 2017. Yeah. So we've been five, five years, uh, <laughs> you know, getting to where we are today. Yeah. And I remember you being surprised uh, when we spoke last about the 50-50 response, which I, I took as a positive thing. Um, I've, I've heard a lot of, well, I'm sure you've heard more of it, you know, people griping about a, a standard or a guide or, or whatever. So uh, it, it, I, I took that as a positive thing. I think you did, too. Uh, absolutely. And, you know, like NFPA 921, uh, new developments or 1033, uh, people, you know, in the industry tend to have a negative response to it until you've had the opportunity to sit down with them and talk about it and talk about what the reality of it is. Many times after that, they kind of have a, oh, Okay, well, that's not what I thought. And uh, so I agree. I think overall it was a positive response with, uh, you know, many in the industry realizing this could be a help to them. And that's good news. So how have things been going? Why don't you update us on how the standard has developed since then and, and what stage it's at now? Uh, the committee was appointed in December of 2018. Our first uh, call was in January to begin the process of working on the document in 2019. Uh, that began with uh, an outline of the document. Uh, the first goal we had to do was define what a fire investigation unit was and then move into what the committee felt the document would look like from an outline standpoint. Uh, that took place uh, and was brought back to the committee of, for an outline. Once the outline was approved, uh, I was able to assign task groups for each chapter uh, or the main chapters, four through eight, to outline the individual chapter. Those outlines were then brought back to the full committee to make sure each task group was on the right direction that the committee felt was appropriate. Uh, once that was done, the committees went forward fleshing out the outlines. Uh, that happened throughout 2018, or I'm sorry, 2019, uh, with uh, the outlines being uh, prepared, uh, input being given. Once the document draft was completed, then it was sent to the Standards Council. Uh, the Standards Council is the issuing body of NFPA for all new standards. And they issued the document to receive public input. Uh, that public input uh, proceeded through 2021 uh, and ended January of this year. Uh, the committee uh, received about 240 public inputs to the document. Uh, these ranged from uh, to stop the document. We actually had some public inputs to stop the document uh, and all throughout. And it was really good to see that amount of public input and interest into the document. Uh, the committee met uh, in uh, late spring to review all the public inputs, uh, the committee's required by NFPA regulations to look at each public input and 
made revisions to the document. Uh, those revisions that the committee made was published uh, this fall. The document is now open for public comment. Uh, that public comment period will close January, uh, the first week of January. Once it closes, then our committee will be meeting likely in May to review all the public comments with a comment report being prepared and published likely in October of 2023. If we see no appeals to the document, uh, at that point, we will likely have a consensus standard, which would be published in the early part of 2024. So it's all in all from the committee being appointed in December of 2018 to a document being on the street is, is going to be, you know, a little over five years. Well, it's nice to know that there are so many opportunities for folks that are in the industry to give input. Um, not to mention, you've got a usually a good sized committee of people that represent the, you know, the industry very well. So th that all sounds good to me. You yeah, feel good think, about it? Yes. I think one of the things that makes the NFPA process uh, what it is and has made 921 and 1033 the documents they are, is that process of having public input, public comment, and the ability to appeal the committee's decision. Uh, many, I've always invited people to come to our committee meetings uh, at any time we're having them just to see the process. And they are always very surprised at the openness uh, of the process and how it works. So, uh, I'm, I'm very happy with the NFPA process. I think it leads to the documents being better and the industry uh, being helped and made better as it goes. Seems like it. Um, so 2024, if everything works out right, um, we'll have a new standard. So who is the standard for? Uh, that was one of the things that's in chapter one of the document, it applies to the public and private uh, fire investigation units. Uh, the committee defined during the public input stage a fire investigation unit as a standalone public or private sector agency or company that consists of two or more investigators with the responsibility for fire and explosion investigation. So this is going to apply to public and private. Uh, that was one of our public comments that we had was this should only apply to public. Uh, but this will apply to public and private uh, and to units that consist of more than two people or two or more people. Uh, to uh, be able to identify who it applies to and that it is across the board. So it's not putting a burden just on one sector. Uh, the committee felt that to make this applicable across the board and to improve the profession, it should apply to both public and private sector. Okay. So what's the general approach? I mean, how specific does this standard get to an organization? And you're saying, you know, with two or more people, that's a, a small unit. And I'm sure in some people, they're, they're concerned. Whoa. <laughs> uh, absolutely. Uh, there is, there is concern through the industry on what this may require. Uh, the easy way to explain how 1321 is going to apply is it will require the units to have policies to address various parts of uh, their operations. One of the challenges uh, with many departments is they do things, but if what they do is ever challenged, there's nothing for them to go back to to say, this is what we're abiding by. 
this is going to ask them to have policies uh, to address various aspects of what they do. What this document will not do is tell them or require what the policies must be. Uh, and that's an important aspect because the policy for evidence, per se, for ATF is going to be significantly different than the policy that this small three or four or five man unit will have, which will be different than what this private investigation firm will have. So it's not getting into the details of what the policy relating to evidence must be, but it is talking in a little more general terms that you need to have a policy and these are some of the things that policy should address. Uh, and then it is more up to the individual units to uh, develop the policy and word the policy in such a way that meets the spirit, but also addresses the needs of the agency. Do you think most units, especially small ones, have experience in writing a policy? Uh, the... I believe the short answer to that is no, uh, and that is why, uh, one, this committee is going to be working to develop some examples of policies, uh, and that is also why the IAAI is developing a program specifically related to this standard to be able to assist these agencies. Uh, one of the things that my IAAI is doing is developed a program because many of these agencies don't have the experience or the background on policies. So this program is going to help in many ways related to the standard, but part of that is going to be policies. Another aspect of this uh, is in chapter one, it talks about for many agencies, their parent organization will have policies. Uh, you know, if you're a part of a larger department, uh, that department likely has policies related to budget and management systems and things like that. If the parent organization has the policy in place, you don't need to develop a separate policy. You would be considered, you know, in compliance, for lack of a better word, because the parent organization already has the policy. So part of this is going to be training, which is where the IAAI is going to step in and provide training to help uh, organizations develop policies, giving them examples. And you know, I am in hopes that uh, the 1321 committee will also be developing those uh, examples so that an organization can use an example to help build the policies that they need to put in place. Yeah, I think that'll be very helpful. I remember when starting a business, God, my first one back in like 1980, and everybody told me, oh, you have to have a business plan, you know? And uh, I was like, yeah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Your business plan was not to go bankrupt at that point. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and, and basically I had to go looking at, other business plans. So, I mean, you know, that's how many of us learn. Um, so I've got notes here to focus a little bit on chapters four through eight. And, and I'm wondering if you could tell us at sort of a high level what each of those chapters covers. Uh, absolutely. Uh, the first three chapters in every NFPA document is the same. Uh, you've got administration, you've got references, and you've got definitions. Uh, the meat and potatoes of any NFPA standard starts at Chapter 4. Uh, in 1321, we have Chapters 4 through 8, which are the meat and potatoes of the document itself. Chapter 4 talks about organizational systems or management systems. And within it, we talk about organizational systems, process systems, and then management systems. Uh, these are more of uh, general and a little higher level uh, systems and policies to have in place. Chapter five moves 
into uh, resources, facilities, and equipment. Uh, talking about your your resources, uh, how to you know having a policy about how do you get additional resources uh, if what you're facing exceeds your manpower or expertise. Uh, it talks about indoor and outdoor facilities, uh, and then systems and equipment. You know. What equipment do we need? How do we get that equipment? Uh, this chapter five was significantly uh, edited during the public input phase. Uh, it had gotten a little too deep into the weeds of rather than policies getting more toward what was required, which was a little outside of what the intent of the document was. Uh, chapter six moves into a incredibly important important section uh, that IAAI has been uh, the leader in emphasizing health and safety. Uh, unfortunately, we've lost too many members over the last few years to cancer and related health issues. So chapter six talks about uh, health and safety. Chapter seven is a chapter that has a lot of people's attention because it talks about education, training, and certification. Uh, you know, it links to 1033 uh, when it talks about any types of certification or training. Uh, one of the uh, things that's important for our listeners to understand is when this committee was put together, the scope of the committee specifically excluded the committee from being able to address techniques and methodology, which is covered in 921, as well as qualifications, which is addressed in 1033. So you will see in this section, you know, references to 1033 concerning those specific topics. And, you know, some of the things it talks about in there under for example, professional development. Uh, for example, it says the FIU shall have a policy to provide funding, support, and opportunities for continuing professional development. Uh, you know, I'm in hopes that fire investigation units can take this document and, in particular, this chapter to decision makers, whether it be the fire chief, the police chief, uh, city manager, city council, county council and use this to say we need the funding to be able to do our jobs and do it correctly because there's so much uh, on the line based on what we do. And then the final chapter talks about documentation and reports. Uh, you know, these, again, this ties back to 1033, uh, the JPRs that are associated with it, and it also talks about uh, providing the necessary equipment, you know, and policies related to that for proper documentation. And then the last part of that chapter talks about reports. You know, everybody hates the, the paperwork, but it's a necessary evil in this business. And it talks about, uh, you know, quality assurance and control, uh, the administrative and technical review process. So that's kind of a high-level look at what the document's going to be, and each one of these chapters is going to talk about the policies related to those specific items. You know, as an outsider looking in, one of the lucky guys who doesn't have to learn all of the code and, and the things that, that you all have to live by, um, I feel as though you've spent a lot of time and, and the committee has spent a lot of time trying to make sure that, as you said, you know, we'll send you over to 1033. You're used to that. That's where you get that information. You're going to 921. That's going to give you, you know, your process and some of these things. Mm -hmm. So it feels like it, it, it makes sense and it, it, and is really well thought out. Um, and when I hear about these new standards, I, I, we often hear rumbles in the industry and we've already brought this up a little bit, so I don't want to dwell on it, but could you talk about some of the, more specific misconceptions or concerns, fears you've heard? Yeah, I, I think, you know, uh, 
the fire investigation community is no different than everywhere, everyone else. Yeah. It's the, uh, the fear of the unknown. And, uh, the, the other thing that uh, our profession is guilty of is the fear of what they've heard, uh, versus the reality. Uh, you know, I've had many, you know, express concerns that, well, we don't, you know, need another document telling us what to do. Uh, and but most of them have never read a draft or anything of the document. So I will send them to the NFPA website where they can read a draft of the document as it stands. Uh, I think the 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 big uh, two big fears that I've heard is not being able to comply. Uh, and once I walk them through that, this is not a document says your policy for X must be ABC. It is simply saying that you should have a policy related to this specific topic. We'll use evidence. Uh, that in many ways seems to, uh, you know, allay some of the fears that they have. The other uh, concern was that many saw this as uh, being something that would require an accreditation. And uh, part of that is, again, the rumor mill, which is always very good and rampant within this profession, <laughs> but uh, also just not understanding uh, the process. All NFPA standards are voluntary standards to start with. And there's nothing in this document that requires sort of uh, accreditation. However, I firmly believe there will be, uh, you know, accrediting bodies that will take this standard to develop an accreditation uh, should a fire investigation unit want to pursue accreditation. The other part of that is uh, while, you know, Third-party accreditation is a is a good good thing. It is very expensive. An agency can adopt this standard and then self-accredit that everything we are doing meets this standard. Here is our policies. Here is our procedures. Here is what we're doing. And all that we are doing is in compliance with this standard. So I think... Part of it is the uh, rumor mill and misconceptions, uh, but I, I do think it is providing the uh, industry some direction and guidance uh, that is needed. Okay, I, I I'm thinking again, putting on my fire investigator hat and and reading through some of the notes, and I'm thinking about cross examination. You know, I know 921 is put people in fear. Um, what what about cross examination for somebody who's on a unit? How's it going to affect them? Uh, I I don't I really don't see uh, the investigator being challenged in cross examination with this standard. Uh, what I can envision is an investigator is on the stand and possibly his evidence is being challenged and he is questioned about uh, the policy that the agency has relating to evidence, storage, handling, tagging, and things like that. Uh, that is where I can see the, but I don't, I don't foresee the investigator being, well, is your unit in compliance with, you know, NFPA 1321, you never know what you can be asked, but the, uh, the main emphasis is on the policies. So do you have a policy related to evidence? Yes. What is your policy? Did you comply with that policy? Yes. So I think that's where you may see the questions come. Okay. I had one other note that uh, relating to the amount of work. Some people are concerned that 1321 is going to create a lot of work. What do you have to say to them? This this question has come up. Uh, as, as a matter of fact, uh, it came up 
just recently when I was speaking in Ohio, uh, and part of the presentation I was doing was related to this, and uh, the person I was talking to was in a leadership role within their, quote, fire investigation unit, and he said, you know, this isn't really telling us anything we shouldn't already be doing, but it is telling us that we need to get it done. And his comment was a lot of what is covered, we're already addressing, but there are some things that we're kind of weak in that we need to button up. So I think, yes, if they have, if a investigation unit has nothing, uh, there's, there's going to be work to do, but there's also going to be help out there through IAAI uh, and others. You know, uh, we are very much a community within the fire investigation industry. Uh, one of the strengths we have is our group. So if one unit is lacking in one area, reach out to others that maybe are further along and, and get that help and advice that you need. Uh, in the long run, it will save us uh, down the road, and it will also save some of these units because we live in a very litigious world now. And, you know, a fire investigation unit, whether it's public or private, could be sued at any time. And, you know, that unit can go back to, yes, we have a policy related to this and we complied with our policy. That's going to go a long way in helping them if they find themselves in that situation. Okay. So, You've been around for the release of some standards in the past, and, and we've already talked about the reaction of the fire investigation community, um, and you've you've lived through them, um, through these reactions, and, and then watching as, as things mature, uh, people learn about how to use the standard. What's your expectation with 1321 about how it'll evolve into the industry? Yeah. I think 1321 is going to be just like 921-1033, and more particularly in specific areas. Uh, if you remember, uh, we did a CFI trainer module on uh, negative corpus several years ago. Mm -hmm. uh, when that first came out in 921, uh, there was a tremendous outcry. 921 evolved and improved. It better explained things, better addressed things, and it took a couple of additions to get that language where it needed to be. I think the same thing is going to be true of 1321. Uh, initially, it's put together by a committee, uh, a, a balanced committee from diverse backgrounds. We get public input, which makes the document better. We get public comments that makes the document better. Then the document is pushed out. The next edition of this document, there will be a lot of public input because now they've got the document to look at. That next cycle of public input of public comments is going to improve the standard significantly. So each edition is going to evolve and improve. And I think it will take you know, another addition to get this document where it needs to be uh, because it, it takes, you know, while we've got a good committee that is working hard, it takes all of the stakeholders and the community involvement to help the document mature, as you said, and I, that's a very good word, to mature and evolve to where it is really the beneficial standard that we hope it will be for the industry. Okay. Yeah. I, I, and I guess ultimately when I think about my exposure to all the different fire, ex, fire investigators that I've been with, as much as they push back on some of these standards, they hold them just as tight, <laughs> um, you know, later on down the road, they'll, you'll get into a conversation and they'll grab their 921 or their 1033 very, very, very tightly. Uh, <laughs> So a absolutely. I mean, uh, 
I, I can remember when 921 first come out uh, and uh, my supervisor at that time walked into my office and threw the document on my desk and said, you guys are going to have us wearing lab coats and pocket protectors before it's over with. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and like you say, now every conference you go to, they're going to talk about 921 and the JPRs of 1033. Every conference and most conferences are designed around those two documents. Yeah. So it, it does take time. And quite frankly, uh, most of CFI trainer has been built on those documents. Uh, Absolutely. So, you know, there's strength in this structure that sometimes feels confining. Uh, and and I, I don't know. I just hope everybody sees it that way. And, and as you've said, you know, gets that extra support to do the training, the more than $3,000 in a, in a large, <laughs> in a large, uh, unit that just seems painful so i hope i hope we do see better training and education coming out of this for a lot of the people who want it absolutely what do you see as specific uses of the standard uh, i i believe once people understand it it's going to uh lend to much better operations of units because as they develop policies, when you think about writing a policy for how you're going to handle evidence, it will make you better at handling evidence. So I, I think the evolution is going to be, as the policies are developed, it's going to make the units better. Uh, I think it's going to allow these units to have something with, uh, I'll use the word teeth in it, although it, again, it's a voluntary standard, that they can go to decision makers and, and request funds or, or apply for grants to help them get the equipment, the training, uh, the support they need. Because many times the fire investigation unit, they end up getting the crumbs that are left over from the agency or department. Uh, you know, if you're in a fire department and a part of a fire investigation unit, you know, the money goes to the big red trucks. The fire investigation unit is kind of left with, okay, what have we got left over that we can give to this group? And help these agencies understand the importance of fire investigation and how it is a life safety issue to save lives, to improve products. Uh, so I'm in hopes that this can be used by units and the unit's leadership to go to decision makers to get them the resources they need. Yeah. And it sounds like uh, that would affect everything from how you're hired, uh, training, accreditation, resources that you need, um, as well as dealing with regulation in your area. Correct? Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. Um, well, it sounds good to me, but I don't have to learn all of it. I, I <laughs> and I, I look forward, you know, to being part of, of what we do to train people how to use it. Um, everybody's got a year to think about it or to to get a. I guess once public comment comes in, they can get up on the website, read that, and uh, make comments if they want to. So everybody has a chance to be part of this. And anything else that you wanted to say before we wrap up 1321? No, I think uh, the comments you just made is really important. Uh, very seldom when I'm giving presentations, I will ask people to raise if they have made any efforts to put in a public comment or public uh, input, and it's very seldom that anyone raises their hand. Uh, the, you you as a user of this or part of this industry have the ability to have an impact. So don't just have to respond to what is being done. Have a part in being involved in shaping what is being done. Uh, that will make the documents and the industry better. God, I love all that. Um, now I'm thinking about you. You've been uh, been president for what since April? 
uh, of the IAAI. And I'm wondering if we could take a few minutes to talk about you and, and your presidency. Uh, it's, uh, it's been interesting for sure. <laughs> well, I know it's, <laughs> it, it's, it, it's a lot more than I think a lot of people who run for president expect it to be. So let's start out with, you know, what were your goals and how you feeling you're moving ahead on those? There, there is no training course to, uh, that you can go to, to, to become president. Uh, it's, you know, you raise your hand and then suddenly you are him or her, uh, you know, goals are often modified based on the circumstances we're facing. Uh, Jacksonville was our first ITC in two years. Uh, our association was, in my opinion, fractured uh, because we weren't able to be together. And we as an association are stronger when we're together. Uh, as a result of that, the theme of my speech at the banquet was rise up together and strive for excellence. So the first and primary goal for me was to, uh, to bring us together, you know, as members, as chapters, uh, you know, and I looked at this as two parts. The first was for us to really engage our students and new investigators. Uh, Rod, as you well know, having been at many of our ITCs, uh, when you're up at the head table and you look out, we're a very graying profession. You know, I use the words, there's a lot of gray hair and no hair sitting out there in the audience. <laughs> Uh, we need these students and new investigators coming behind us to be the leaders needed to move our association forward. And if we don't engage them and raise them up, then it's our fault if they don't become the leaders needed to move our association. The second part was to have our board be out and engaging our chapters and our members, both sharing and listening. As we do this, we learn and grow. And we have been, as a board, been out visiting chapters, engaging with members, doing that listening, doing that sharing. Uh, and that has been a significant impact, both on the board itself and on the members and the chapters. You know, additionally, a main goal was to finally get a strategic plan that would provide a strategy for the vision and direction of our association. Uh, instead of like being a sailboat, being blown about by the circumstances with no rudder, uh, we wanted to put a rudder on the IAAI ship that would provide us guidance and direction and kind of an anchor point. So if circumstances like a global pandemic blows us off course, it gives us something to come back to. Uh, and that was a, a huge goal to get us on track for that. So what do you think one of the best things to happen? And I don't think looking back three, four years is fair because it's it's certainly been tough. I think Rick Jones, of, of all the guys, got the toughest presidency in the history of the IAAI. But um, what what's one of your favorite things that you've seen happen in the past, I don't know, past years? You know, when you think of, say, the last five or six years, you can't do that without, you know, uh, that little thing called COVID, yeah. you know, which just kind of devastated the world. We lost, you know, many members, uh, you know. However, I think part of what I'm proud of is the IAAI not only survived during that time, but in many ways was able to thrive. Uh, within a month or so of everything being shut down, our T&E committee pivoted to push out a, uh, a schedule for seven virtual classes. Uh, and that was something we had never really done before. We had CFI trainer, but as an IAAI, we had never really done virtual training. Uh, you know, the pandemic forced us to adapt to the circumstances in order to provide quality training to our members 
in the midst of a shutdown. Uh, this virtual training uh, was done very quickly, uh, and it provided our members with the necessary training and resources. It just so happened that we had a new copy of 921 that had just been out. So that provided a great platform to be able to move forward with. Uh, so that virtual training not only thrived during the pandemic, but has now become part of our uh, training portfolio to be able to educate our members. You know, uh, the second very important move was, as I just mentioned, this strategic plan. You know, in, in the past, there's been a lack of consistency from administration to the next. One president would set an agenda going one direction. The next president may set an agenda going a completely different direction. Uh, and the agreement on a strategic plan by the board uh, provides that consistency uh, in direction for the next three to four years. Uh, what is also important is that the executive team, which consists of not only the president and the immediate past president, but the first and second vice president, are also uh, on board with this plan and direction. So something that may be started by me during my term as president uh, can be picked up and uh, carried forward as part of that plan because the strategic plan provides us that prism by which we can look at everything and go, is this consistent with our strategic plan? If it is, where does it fit? And let's place it there. If it doesn't, then maybe that's something we should be working on right now. So I think those have been some of the biggest moves that the association has done that can set the stage for the future. Yeah. You know, and I'm going to risk saying this and you can tell me I have to edit it out, but I don't think you will. <laughs> I, uh, I think you would be happy to see members sometimes coming to a board meeting and just, just to, you know, learn what's going on in there and, and see what it takes to get, to, to hear all these voices from around the world and then put together a, a strategic plan that hopefully is embracing all of the chapters and, and everybody around the globe. Uh, and it's interesting you should make that comment. Uh, this year, for the first time that I'm aware of, we are having two in-person board meetings. Uh, we had our first in-person board meeting in Savannah, in conjunction with the Georgia chapter conference. The Georgia chapter's board was invited to our meeting uh, and they are open to the public unless the board goes into executive session. Uh, that allows the members and the boards to engage with all of our board members and us to engage with them. Again, that listening and sharing. Uh, in January, uh, we will have our second in-person board meeting, and that will be in conjunction with the uh, UK chapter uh, at uh, just outside of London. Again, we will be able to engage that chapter, have them involved, participate, attend our board meeting, us attend their board meeting, their conference, engage with them. Uh, because I think it's important as a as a board, as an association, that we remember the first letter in IAAI stands for international. How about it? And by engaging with these chapters uh, that are non-U.S. based, it helps them feel more of a part. Uh, I've uh, attended virtually uh, the Chapter 79 and our new Chile chapter event, which I was supposed to attend in person, but uh, you know there were some things that took place that I wasn't able to go. And the first annual conference for our Central European chapter. Uh, so engaging those chapters and encouraging them to engage with us uh, is really important. And another aspect of that is uh, establishing an international advisory panel that will be falling under 
our membership committee made up of members representing various regions around the world to, again, help engage them and understand issues that they have that we can assist with. Yeah, I think it's great. I, I, you know, I know throughout the years, it's always been, well, should we spend the money uh, to travel? And then at the same time, it's like, look, this is an international organization. And everything I've seen from when I went over uh, and was experienced what was going on in the UK with the board beans, it was excellent. Uh, First of all, you saw people from other countries that could more easily travel to London than perhaps Kentucky or Mm -hmm. North Carolina. So, you know, the whole experience i just was so good for the board members themselves and for the members of the organization so good for you um, yeah I, I think i think engaging that the central european chapter had their first conference and i was able to attend it virtually uh at their conference they had members from 11 different countries and it was held in milan italy but they had members from 11 different countries at that conference uh so having that ability to engage with them was was extremely exciting beautiful so let's uh let's break let's have some breaking news (laughs) (laughs) what what are you excited about uh for iwi i mean you're i guess halfway in um the time flies when you're president but what what are you excited about as uh we we start to breach to 2023 uh the thing that excites me the most is when I go to these various chapters and interact with the various boards and members is to see their excitement. Uh, excitement and enthusiasm is contagious. Uh, you know, I've seen chapters that have never had a scholarship program for students or new investigators develop scholarship programs. I've seen chapters that had an existing uh, scholarship program that has expanded it. Instead of just doing one person for a scholarship, maybe they're doing two or three. What's even more exciting is seeing members get excited about that scholarship program and a member stepping up and saying, well, if the chapter is going to offer a scholarship, I'll pay for their lodging or I will pay uh, for their meals and take them out to uh, to dinner. You know, this kind of paying it forward and seeing our association so engaged with each other is exciting for me. Uh, And it goes back to that rise up together and strive for excellence. Uh, You know, something else is very exciting uh, for this coming year is at the ITC in Cherokee, we will be bringing back the poster program that was started by the late Jamie Novak. Uh, that uh, he started several years ago to provide a a platform that students, investigators can present their research projects to the membership. And what is interesting is when this program was being done, 100% of the students that participated in the poster program had job offers when they graduated. Uh, awesome that's that's the kind of stuff that is exciting to me it's it's that strength of rising up together but to push for excellence as we move forward and there's some of your background in mentoring you know that's probably why i sea has uh grabbed hold and let you take that mentoring role and and i think you've always been great at that um so i appreciate those kind words uh the more you mentor, uh, the better it makes you, and and hopefully it helps the person you're mentoring as well. Well, it also helps get a little bit less gray out of that audience when you're looking <laughs> at it ITC. So absolutely, uh, I since you said pay it forward, I thought I, I would mention this. I hadn't planned on it, but Jerry Nailis, who is a past president and who's been on many boards and done countless of things for the IWI has put out a challenge uh, to folks to support CFI Trainer and uh, the foundation, the IWI's foundation as well. So uh, just just so folks know, uh, Jerry had a rough year, 
he made a decision that he wanted to make a long-term donation of $1,000 a year uh, to the IAAI, and he's challenging people to put support into CFI Trainer and into the foundation. Uh, so just, just a word for you folks out there. You're going to be getting some emails that tell Jerry's story. Uh, I would hope that people take the time to read that and understand, you know, what he's trying to do. I, I, you know, Ron, I think it's uh, amazing what past president Nalus is doing. It, it really shows his heart. Uh, you talk about mentoring. Uh, uh, there's untold numbers of people that Jerry has uh, mentored over the years. And uh, he talked to me about this initiative and I was excited. Uh, but it, it goes to show his heart and his uh, desire to see this association get better and progress. And uh, so I'm excited to see this initiative get started and to see what, what can be accomplished in the years to come uh, through Jerry's heart and this idea that he has. Yeah, absolutely. So people can go um, to the donate button that they'll see in their email, or they can go up to the foundation site, uh, and there, there are places that you can make your donation. You just, there's a big banner on the front that says donate now, and uh, they can make either contributions to the foundation programs or specifically to the CFI trainer.net drive that uh, Jerry started for this holiday. So we're going to be getting this podcast out before the end of the year and uh, any donations that people make are a tax deduction uh, depending on where they live, but uh, there's a tax deduction that they can take. So, as you said, you know, very grateful for what Jerry's done for the organization and, uh, and, and the commitment that he's made here. I am grateful for your time. Really am. I, I, uh, I'm wondering if there's anything else that we've missed, anything that you want to get out to the audience? Uh, no, again, I just appreciate all the, the work that, uh, you and Kathy and all the folks at Stonehouse, uh, do to, uh, help the IAAI get its message out. Uh, I want to thank all the members for their efforts, uh, for taking what they do so seriously, committing the time for training, uh, and then sharing with others. Uh, that's what this association is all about. And it's exciting to see where it's going to go in the years to come. I love the way you say that, Randy. I'll let you wrap. That's the wrap. You have a great time uh, throughout the holiday, and I hope you have a great new year. And, and from all of us, thank you very much. Uh, it's uh, happy to be here, and uh, very happy holidays to uh, your staff and all of our members out there. Thank you, Randy. Be well. Earlier in the podcast, I mentioned Jerry Nalis's great challenge and donation to the IAAI and CFI trainer. But I want to be clear about how the money is spent. The contributions that you make will go directly to the operating expenses of production and technology. While we rely on grant funding, we need to be ready for when a grant application may not go through or when the funding ends in any way. We need to keep CFITrainer.net going, and to do so, we need your help for the future. You can go to firearson.com, CFITrainer.net, or the Foundation's website off of firearson.com and click on one of the links to give to CFI Trainer or to the Foundation. Your help makes a big difference. To all of you, we wish you the best during the holidays. We hope you stay safe, have wonderful travels, get to be with your families, and move on into 2023 with a healthy and prosperous year. This podcast and CFITrainer.net are made possible by funding from a fire prevention and safety grant from the Assistance to Firefighters Grant Program administered by FEMA and the U.S. Department of Homeland Security. There's also support from the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms, and Explosives and voluntary online donations from CFITrainer.net users and podcast listeners. Thanks for joining us today on this podcast. Stay safe, and we'll see you next year. Peace.